Welcome to the My Dialorama podcast. Thanks for joining us again. This time we're having a bit of a novelty. We have a guest. Well, actually, I'll let I'll let George introduce himself. So I'm Abla. I'm a film programmer. George, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Abla, and thanks for having me on. Um, I know this has been a, a few weeks in the making now, um, and been really enjoying the podcast thus far. So I'm also a film programmer, uh, although I've got a few other hats. Um, I am a lecturer in film studies, and I am also the co-founder and festival producer of the Japanese avant-garde and experimental film festival. Great, thank you very much. And my co-host Coco Green is still there. Hello. Hello. So I'll start briefly, as usual, we'll have an intro where we talk about our picks of the week, and then we'll crack on and talk about Black is King. So very briefly, last week I talked about season one of The Sinner on Netflix and I've been watching season two and the only reason I'm mentioning this is because season one of The Sinner made us discuss something that we'd been previously discussing which was the um, expediency of treating cases in various police departments across the US where they would pin a number of crimes on one person. It's based on a child who commits a crime like the previous season which is where uh, a seemingly very innocent person, which is a young mum, commits a crime. This child comes from a cult. And the previous time we were talking about cults. So if you want to hear more about what we had to say and what the difference, the fine line or thick line between cults and religions is, you can just listen to the previous podcast. I don't know if we were ever definitive on that. I think we had some ideas. We weren't. You concluded that a cult is a new religion oh yes well yeah but that's the definition yeah it's a cult's new it's religion. the definition yeah. but i made the point that a cult is culturally isolated if that makes sense so a cult very much operates in isolation of the rest of society and its own system of beliefs isn't embedded in society so for example very briefly say a, a, a so-called secular state like france its calendar is based on catholicism it's based on christianity most of its rituals and its uh, the way that its society is structured, all of those things are based on Christianity. Whereas none of these are based on, say, the Temple du Soleil or any of its cults. Do you see what I mean? They operate within their own systems of rituals and beliefs that aren't really connected to anything else. And I want to say this because I, I thought of it after we finished the podcast. I was like, oh, I should have said this intelligent sounding thing. And I didn't. So <laughs> I wanted to shoehorn <laughs> it in this week. Oh, so thank you good. for that. Giving me this little platform. <laughs> Moving on from the sinner, finally, I'm going to talk about the festivals first, because I also want to talk about another film that will allow me to segue more easily and more elegantly into our main subject. So... I mentioned previously the Iraqi Independent Film Festival that's going to be online and free to watch from the 21st to the 28th of August. The programme is now live, so you can see this on their Instagram page. They have a really nice selection of films, talks, etc. There's a, a women's fil- women filmmakers programme, etc. Another one that I'd like to flag has been recommended by a film magazine, which is the Film Fest Report, which just an aside it's a really good tool for programmers and festival directors because it's a new magazine that lists and covers most of the worldwide film festivals anyway film fest report recommend the international film festival in cologne anyway that's going to be the first edition of that festival 
the second reason the award selection is quite eclectic so they've got an award for best music video for web, best web series and that will take place from the 11th to 12th of September and it's going to be venue based so that an, there's an after party so I'm not sure how that will that will happen and then online for free again is the London Kurdish Film Festival currently running from the 15th to 24th of August and it's very very rich in content and diversity as there are uh, I think about 50 screenings and it's very nicely curated so they have various themes they've got women in films they've got the rather more depressing uh, war on screen I think they've got uh, children on film and looking at their website it's very very slick and well put together and it's a very comprehensive com comprehensive website so you just go on the picture of the film and it just takes you to a YouTube link to watch it so you can have a lot of fun with that what would you recommend George let's go to Australia so um <laughs> so I went four days short of six months I went to a, a real cinema for the first time since since lockdown and I saw Shannon Murphy's Baby Teeth so debut film from Shannon Murphy set in Sydney uh, Eliza Scanlon. She plays a 16-year-old girl with cancer. It starts with her having this kind of crash meet cute moment with a really scuzzy, really good-looking guy played by Toby Wallace, who's kind of imagine an Australian. It's kind of if if Sheila Berth was playing this kind of was Australian, is a kind of character he would play. <laughs> and actually, it's not that dissimilar from the start of like American Honey, for example, where a young a young woman meets this kind of slightly shady, slightly dodgy, but quite attractive in dangerous ways, man, and decides that, well, actually, my life as I'm living it is not really up to much, or it's not satisfying. And she kind of goes, takes a kind of left turn in life uh, from that point. It's a really, really weird film. It keeps taking these left turns. It keeps subverting your expectations. There's little narratives seem to be bubbling up very cliched narrative pathways which then just don't pan out. It's massively elliptical, there's huge time jumps between scenes uh, which is quite unusual I think in, in, in Western filmmaking, certainly in mainstream filmmaking. It's suggested perhaps later on that the scenes aren't necessarily playing out in chronological order although that's quite hard to establish. So her parents, played by Essie Davis, who uh, I know from The Babadook. She's the mum in that. She's very good. Oh. Uh, ben Mendelsohn, who's in just about everything now, as far as I can tell, um, every sort of major Hollywood film. And there's this incorporation of, like, the cuckoo in the nest as this character, Toby Wallace's character Moses, becomes more insidiously incorporated into this family unit. And the family unit becomes very strange and unconventional uh, I was actually reminded in a way of something like Yorgos Lanthimos's dog tooth uh, the kind of cuckoo coming into the family and changing the dynamics massively I think probably goes back to P Pasolini theorem uh, sort of political filmmaking back in the I think 1970 that film is or uh, late 60s and then it's been redone like in a more lo-fi way by people like Takeshi Miike of Visitor Q there's the house is very modernist and very strange that that idea actually reminded me of something like Parasite even 
so there's this very offbeat tonal aspect to the film. And there's a point in the middle of the film where the character's parents, so Essie Davis and Ben Mendelsohn, they have to basically make a decision. Are they going to accept all the craziness that's going on in their daughter's life? Or are they going to kind of sort of put their foot down and say, no, this is ridiculous. And almost, I think, the audience has to make that same decision. Are you going to go with the film? Are you going to follow it and just say, okay, look, this is, I'm just going to let this carry me along? Or you, I can imagine people being quite resistant to that as well. So I would definitely recommend it, but I can't guarantee that you would like it. So what, did, what drew you to, to it? I think it's the first film out in cinemas that's, oh, well, there haven't been many films out that's had anything like a good review probably i was just keen to go back and see something and it was quite a weird experience going through the cinema once i was in my seat it was fine there were actually more people in the cinema than i had anticipated i thought it'd be completely empty oh that's heartening from australia we zoom back to the us and i would like to mention a film that i saw yesterday incidentally which is the richard Pryor documentary from 2013 and it's called richard Pryor omit the logic and it's now on sky and I really enjoyed that because I've always been a bit of a fan of Richard Pryor's both um, films and stand-up. And I didn't really know much about his life. I knew he he suffered from depression and drug abuse. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's the usual talking heads. They've got Robin Williams. They've got, um, got uh, Whoopi Goldberg and so on talking about him. I definitely recommend it if you're interested in Richard Pryor's life. There wasn't enough about, I think, his... His early career, I would have liked to find out more about how he got into films, how he got into stand-up and so on. I, I would have liked a bit more about that. But overall, it's a really good documentary. But the reason I mention it specifically here is because there's a bit where apparently he goes to Africa to find his roots. And one of the talking heads, I think it's one of his ex-wives, who says he had a bit of an identity crisis and he felt that he needed to go back to Africa to his origins and so on. And that's what I think is worth tying into um, Blackest King and incidentally what we were talking about last time in the context of American Horror Story where we talked about voodoo and about how a lot of uh, black Americans are experiencing this identity crisis in regards to tracing back um, somewhat mythical history to Africa. Which I critique because I certainly think it's Exactly but that's yeah. why I bring it up and what's interesting is that when they talk about Richard Pryor he just goes back to Africa. There's no mention of what country he goes to, what city he goes to. Hence the problem. That's how it always is. People pick a country. I saw this rapper once on social media talking about Ghana and he'd gone on a trip. And I'm really bad with pop culture. In fact, it's embarrassing. People, are, my friends are ashamed of me. They're just like, don't speak when we're having this conversation. Just <laughs> drink your cocktail because you, you embarrass yourself. You embarrass us. So I usually don't speak on these things. So of course I had to ask like, oh, who's, because he was the son of a rapper. And I said, oh, so is his mom from Ghana? No. <laughs> so <laughs> what did I miss here? And that is just how it is. It's interchangeable. It's all the same. And it's a continent. Yeah. And lots of different people live there, not just what, you know, the R forebears, I should say. Well, that's why I think it will be interesting to, to talk about in the context of Beyonce's film. Yes, because I do talk about that as well. I want to talk about that. So great job, Abla. We're so insane. What a good pick. Thank you, George. What a team. <laughs> um, Did Richard Pryor make a like $80 million 
musical film about his trip to Africa, quote unquote. <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah, Abla, sorry, I cut you off. So what happened when he w- went? That's it. They didn't really talk about it. He just went and found himself and came back and he developed this sort of vague interest in Africa and African culture and whatever that means. And I wish they'd spoken more about that and the link between this and his stand up or between this and his political activity. They again, they glossed over that. There are some pictures of him with a like a beret looking like a Black Panther. But there wasn't much about that at all. So I'm, I don't really know where he stood. Well, you know, it could have been the context because as we all know, in the 70s, Alex Haley's roots was very popular. And I think it was a shift for a lot of people who were raised to be ashamed of not only slavery, but African heritage and really focused on their white great grandparent or fictitious Native American great grandparent, right? Versus talking about the African one. So it was such a source of pride for people to begin to explore that. So maybe it was in that time where he thought, oh, Alex Haley went and I should go to any, you know, Alex Haley, of course, encouraged other people, but let's not forget, although we, I, I don't want to underestimate the cultural significance of it. It was made up. And I still can't tell you to this day when I'm meet people in London they'll ask me if I've traced my roots I'm like no that was made up have you traced yours and they're like why would I do that exactly oh can't cope but you go ahead I'm so interested to hear what you have to say about that well on to our focus of the week which is beyond should I call it Beyonce's film Blackest King because I had to google it I didn't know what it was so I will let George introduce it uh, and but I'm not the audience for it also because I did not watch The Lion King. I'm I'm not the biggest Disney fan. You didn't watch the cartoon? I didn't watch any part of it. I just instinctively okay, I resist Hamlet, that so. kind of film. <laughs> so I would be curious to see what you both make Wait, of it. Wait, you said you don't like that kind of film? What because of the I don't cartoon? well I don't like Disney, but that will be an entirely different podcast as to my various reasons for not liking Disney, what they stand for and their practices, which are very dubious. On that note, what I'll do is because I, I, there's an article that will sum up my opinion of Disney much, much more eloquently than I can. So I will leave a link to it for viewers to make up their own minds. But as a kid, I was very politicized and already at about six, I was very uncool, but about six or seven years old, I already knew that Disney was not the sort of thing that I should be watching. And I, kind of, I was already put off by the talking animals. But as a kid, I was a bit of a snob. So I will let... Uh, George, introduce it because it's your pick. Go for it. Okay, well, Black is King is um, uh, a feature-length musical, I suppose we can call it, a visual album for uh, an album she released called The Gift, which was released in support of the... It's not really a live-action remake, it's just a kind of real photorealist animated updating of The Lion King that came out in 2019. Yeah, which is a film, which is an extremely kind of dead, dead hollow exercise in cashing in and in your intellectual own intellectual property. Uh, that film. The best thing about that film is probably the one original song taken from the Beyonce album, The Gift. Um, so the Black is King. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into massive details about its plot and narrative as it's quite actually quite an abstract uh, mm-hmm. narrative. Um, it has a loosely, it, I guess it's loosely framed around the Lion King. Uh, I find it a very arbitrary narrative 
hook to hang on it. I think it's the weakest part of the film. It's for those who've seen Lemonade, which is Beyonce's previous visual album. It's similarly kaleidoscopic in style, in tone. Um, there's a, a huge amount of kind of visual information going on. It's massively symbolic. There's a constant switch up of different kind of film formats, different cameras being used, different directors, different cinematographers. Uh, these sort of, uh, I've heard it very reductively described as a series of music videos just stitched together by The Lion King, which um, I think is quite lazy uh, critique of it. The, the least interesting thing about Black is King is probably its connection to The Lion King. Um, it's a, in many ways, a collab, quite a collaborative album. Oh, I mean, you've yeah. heard all the music now because the music. A lot of artists, particularly from West Africa, were included on that album. So Black is King, the only connection to The Lion King is it retains those, um, those sound clips from the film. So when you hear someone going kind of, run away, Simba, <laughs> and never come back, that's taken from the the Disney Lion King remake. And I find those bits quite, uh, they stick out and they feel quite awkwardly shoehorned in. Yeah, because uh, it didn't guide the, the story. I, it didn't match what was happening visually for me. So that's why I was a little confused. I, I wonder if it was just too abstract or if it was too avant-garde. I'm not sure why I didn't get it, but I, I could only get bits and pieces. Or if it's just because I'm not familiar with symbol you know the symbolism from that region sure. of the world I mean, no, so i don't know i think if you took out that because supposedly there's the framing narrative that connects the musical moats uh the musical segments of the film supposedly matches on to that basic core narrative in the lion king but i believe if you took out all the connect all the lion king sound bites uh you just wouldn't see that no one would, I don't think anyone would instinctively say like, oh yes, of course, this is a adaptation of The Lion King. So I think the connection is quite arbitrary. And I think it is, it's a, yeah, it's a marketing thing. And it's the reason why Beyonce was given money by Disney to make the film. It is, it is a really, abs it is, it is a avant-garde piece of sort of pop filmmaking. Uh, it is very abstract. It's, um, so my my interest in this film, um, and I picked this film before I'd seen it, so it's a sight unseen pick for us all to dis to to discuss. But Black is King is the only film uh, this year that I've actually had in my diary for its release date. So excited was I. Now, are you part of the Beehive, or why were you so excited? <laughs> um, I don't identify as a Beehive member. I mean, Beyonce's always been there, like in like in the background I've sort of grown I remember like being at school and um like say my name coming out <laughs> wow you took it back so okay. like Destiny Chance that was there and um when Lemonade came out in 2016 I remember there being a fair bit of media attention to that and I remember there being a, the film coming out I didn't see it but then I think I saw it in a few like end end of year best of lists and then I started teaching uh, a course where Lemonade is one of the films oh. that we watch. So I ended up, what, I, I mean, by this point, I've now, having taught that class for three years, um, 
Uh, I've now seen Lemonade nearly <laughs> 10 times. Around this time, like personally, I was getting into uh, like artist moving image. So when I started going to like artist moving image exhibitions and seeing work by people like Khalil Joseph, um, who, and then realizing that Khalil Joseph, Khalil Joseph is an African-American filmmaker. He has worked, he, he does a lot of gallery work, but he's worked with like Kendrick Lamar and, and other musicians as well. And he did the original cut of Lemonade, uh, which then Beyonce wasn't, I think it was too, you know, it was too avant-garde. Uh, very few people have seen it. It's been screened in a few gallery spaces um, and they don't really talk about it. So it's hard to say how much of his original Lemonade is in the finished version, but he is still listed as it's directed by Beyonce and Khalil Joseph. And then a bunch of other directors that she eventually brought on, including people like Melina Matsukas, who went on to make Queen and Slim, which yeah. came out in uh, February. And then I was writing at the time about uh, some recent Terence Malick films and then working out, realizing that Khalil Joseph has actually worked on some of those. And maybe the style, a very fragmented, particular visual style, he might have gleaned some of that from there, was then definitely popping up in, the, uh, in Lemonade, uh, in Beyonce's film. And then just sort of finding it, really enjoying students' responses to it because it's such, uh, similarly to Black is King, probably more so, it's it's a very overwhelming experience watching it and you can't really recount everything you've seen. Um, I'm sure if I asked Abla to give us a shot-by-shot breakdown of a particular moment, particular sequence in Black is King, you'd yeah. struggle. Um, so, and then realizing that the poetry that Beyonce speaks in both Lemonade and Black is King is by the... Somali British poet Watson Shire, um, and it wasn't her own words. So keep, I kept discovering more things about it. And I kept discovering more uh, people involved in these projects who were just amazing artists or amazing writers, amazing filmmakers in their own right. And this kind of collaborative nature in the uh, to make what is a very mainstream yet very avant-garde piece of work uh, struck me as something quite unique. Um, so when Beyonce like. Then she did uh, Coachella and the Netflix film Homecoming about that came out. Uh, I was fascinated again by this like symbolic uh, use of choreography and costuming uh, to get these very, very dense, very, um, these very dense tapestries, which um, reward like uh, the person who's interested in doing in sort of researching and digging into these, these visual texts, um, which is, like me, I like to go away and I like to sort of be given a project and to feel like there's a lot that I can do as a viewer to better understand what I'm seeing. Right, so that's, so, that's what drew, drew you uh, to it, really, the complexity of it and the things that you can unpick from just watching it a number of times. And it's because there's just so much and there's so, I mean, with Lemonade and with Black as King as well, there's like, there's all the, I, I don't know much about fashion. I really don't know much about like black hairstyles. Then um, I'd been following the work of another uh, experimental artist filmmaker, Jenin Kiru, who's a British-Nigerian filmmaker who has uh, worked with people like Arthur Jafer, who is probably my favorite filmmaker of the moment. He's another experimental filmmaker, but he was a cinematographer working for Spike Lee back in the 90s, and he was a cinematographer on Judy Dash's Daughters of the Dust, uh, which is a big is a big influence again for Beyonce 
Um, so Jenny Kiru then uh, tweeted that she was working on. She when she announced that when the trailer for Black is King first came out, she said, "Yeah, here's this project I've been working on." And I was like, "Oh my god!" Like uh, his again, further like artists within the avant-garde sphere are again collaborating with this massively successful pop star being given this opportunity to create work on a platform with money with resources that are just like unforeseen for these kinds of practitioners in years gone by and possibly years to come this might be their only opportunity then finding out a bit more realizing that uh, the Ghanaian director Blitz Bazawule uh, he's also a musician Blitz the ambassador is his music name who directed a film I really love called The Burial of Kojo, which is on Netflix. And I know, I think, Abla, you've seen yeah, Burial of Kojo. Yeah, and I, I was interested to know what link you, you'd you made between the two. So, well, firstly, Burial of Kojo, um, which I do strongly recommend to any any listeners who haven't seen it, and it's on Netflix. Um, and although it's the, the film hasn't got like a massive amount of fanfare around it, I think the... The fact that so it's a Ghanaian, uh, Blitz Bazawile is a Ghanaian film director. Uh, Burial of Kojo was his first feature. And he does the all the kind of framing segments in Black is King are directed oh, by him. Right. So all the non And I think he directed the Don't You Jealous Me section, which is where you've got um, Lord Afrixana with the big python on him, that uh, early section in the film. So, yeah, yeah, Baron of Kojo, I think pictorially there is a certain connection. He he describes, he self-identifies as a kind of magical realist yeah. filmmaker. Baron of Kojo is a fairly simple story about a, uh, a woman remembering as a young girl the death of her father in a, an, a legal mine in Ghana, but telling it as a kind of ghost story with trips into uh, this kind of third realm where spirits reside, but told in style where nothing about that is particularly exceptional. That is just facts It of reminded life. me of Fatlantique, um, actually, and I thought it was interesting that it had... Did it come out the same year? Yes. I think that's a fantastic comparison, actually, um, in the way... I mean, so Matty Diop's Atlantique's uh, Senegalese, but has quite quite a similar approach to the sort of use of myth yeah. in that film or the use of the idea of magic or the idea of like uh, uh, the co coexistence of spirits in in the world and that not being it's not not being anything particularly surprising in both those mm -hmm. films translating um, the hardship that I mean, the characters go through which it's they go to see yeah. It's it's uh, that which is a really uh, interesting turn of turn of phrase. I was talking about um, Black is King with my friend uh, Ghanaian British poet Lebeja Kodua, who had just watched Atlantiques before we had this uh, conversation a couple of days ago, and he spoke about like Atlantiques has a is definitely comparable to Burial of Kodua. Atlantiques and Burial of Kodua, I think, visually. Certainly, tonally very different to Black as King, but have certain visual motifs there. But he spoke of the idea of like going to sea mm -hmm. being something being so like loaded, so fraught with potential trauma, or it's it's a very um, uneasy statement in that film. Um, and then being associated with now escape, but also incredible peril yeah. with the the idea of being a you know getting on a boat as a refugee or trying to go to Europe. I think they're trying to go to Spain yeah, in Atlantic. 
Uh, but Atlantique and Buried of Kojo are, I don't, they're probably not the most well known uh, films made in West Africa. Uh, they're not as sort of held up as films by uh, Matty Diop's uncle, Dribriel and Diop Umberti, like Tuki Buki or Spoyos Minsemen. Well, I, funnily enough, I wanted to talk about uh, African film as a, I guess, as a way of comparing the impact that Blackest King is meant to have. Mm-hmm. Because we talk about its artistic aesthetic values and the complexity of the way it was put together and the collaboration of various very talented artists. Um, I think where the, the issue is, is really, does it convey what it is meant to convey? Is it as empowering as the people behind it want it to be? And again, this is from a viewer's perspective, but I feel like obviously now, because I've looked at his work a lot, but uh, Usman Sambini's work comes to mind. That that kind of filmmaking is much more empowering. And well, I think it depends what kind of story you're trying to tell, right? Because to me, this is more about Black American imagination, like Af- how Africa lives in the Black American imagination. Like even the title Black is King, would someone in Africa even refer to themselves as Black? No, like that's that's an American thing. And then we want other people to have that identity. You see, I don't think I don't think there's that self-awareness there. I think if you read, I mean, again, this is because I've just read up on it, but it, the idea is very much to feel proud of your African roots and to depict the the richness of Africa as a continent. And there's been a lot of criticism of that by Africans who were like, well, this doesn't actually reflect the the issues on the ground. Well, I think that's part of the issue, right? I mean, I think anything you look at that's presented in that way, and I've struggled with this trying to explain to non-American Black people my own evidence-based, not just opinion that's just sitting at home watching the news, but reading the research, right, by political scientists and sociologists around how we can contextualize and understand Black struggles in the U.S. is that you... In the media, it is if, as if slavery didn't happen. And I think I would agree with whatever criticism that you were talking about, Avila, because it does yeah. depict an Africa in which colonialism didn't happen. That's what you're looking at. So it's, it is all very much a fantasy, which I don't think is a problem. It's only a problem when people take that to be real. One thing that a lot of people applauded the film for doing, which is that it gives not just black people, but black women pride in their appearance. Allegedly. Come on now. Okay. It's Beyonce. Can we start there? How much does Beyonce, and don't get me wrong, like, of course, Beyonce is beautiful. Everyone can agree on that. At the same time, just like any, anyone that's celebrated for their beauty, it's by definition not average, right? So there's not, there's not, she's not a typical black woman. It's not her job to be though, you know, and I, I remember the song, yes, about dark skinned girls and she brought in her old destiny childs uh, and I'm sure they're still best friends, right? To sing to her about being beautiful and, you know, to her daughter's kinky hair and coils. Yes, 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 yes. To me, I don't know if, I've always found that to be a problem. And of course, I'm speaking as a dark skinned woman. And I now had to stop getting a relaxer because I could not find. Well, let me not say that. I don't want to say anything inflammatory. But ultimately, I I did have to start wearing my hair natural. And I straighten it all the time, as Abla can attest to. I don't think she's ever seen my hair natural. I'm always straightening it with, you know, just flat iron or whatever. But I just, I don't think that we should put that kind of 
I don't think we should value ourselves as women in our. But it's not beauty. It's it's physical and features. I think, I, oh come on, it, it it's beauty. Let's we all know we've all seen Beauty and the Beast. I know you hate Disney, but yes, real beauty is on the inside. Okay, but if we're gonna be real, real beauty in appearance, how you look. I don't want us to have our self-esteem from that. Like I want our self-esteem to come from somewhere else. I shouldn't have value as a woman because you think I'm beautiful or attractive or I'm somehow sexually enticing you. And of course, you know, as a woman, you want to do those things. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I think we have a disproportionate amount of value on that. And even messaging I've seen, and of course everything has to be taken everything's got to have balance, right? So you want to have some of that. But even the things I've seen with affirming our cute chocolate girls, it's all about telling them how pretty they are. It's like, well, why not tell them what a great daughter they are or what a great sister they are or what about a friend they are or how much they help you, you know, talking about their behaviors and the values that they have that are expressed in their actions or how they make other people feel or even just the things they do to keep the household running. Like, I love that I never have to nag you about doing your chores. And it sounds silly, but ultimately, then what do you do? I think that's why some people then have a breakdown. In fact, my friend just sent me uh, someone's, one of her friend is putting together a film. And it was all about that, the anger and resentment of not being desired as a dark-skinned woman. I just can't take it. Like, you're that can't be the source of your pain. And I think it also takes away from, I think, the political work that we need to do, because that's the real source. So anytime you look at it as, oh, well, it's because someone isn't affirming me, that's when they've got you. They want your attention there so that you don't have to dig deeper to say where the real source of that is, which isn't kind of like a race, you know, systemic racism, white supremacy. That should be your focus, which isn't to say, like I said, beauty is important. Like, yeah. it's fine. Like, I, I love to go to the Mac counter and to get my makeup done because I <laughs> cannot do it myself like a child. I, what I'm saying, the message was lost on me because my family is super, you know, I was definitely raised to do that. I'm just thinking when we're telling a broader story about that, it's like, and, and they were all sexy. She didn't have any ugly dark skinned women on there. So <laughs> stop it. Just stop. They were all gorgeous. All looking fly. Even Lupita had her dance going. It's like, I've never seen her dance like that. They were just as sexy as they wanted to be. Talking about just <laughs> enough. So no, now, I would have heard another song about... I uh, kind, I agree, yeah. but that's that's sort of what I was going to say. I mean, that's what it was lauded for doing, which, which was giving, trying to convince legions of women and girls to leave... Uh, leave aside the bleaching creams and the straighteners and so on. Oh, I forgot in that context. I forgot they still do that there because that's not they the do the thing. They do the bleaching I creams Even- all over the world. Arab world, they still do. Weirdly enough, as I said uh, last time, I mean, I always thought of myself as white other, I guess, is what you what I de- tend to tick on the little boxes here. But I'm Middle Eastern. Um, I have curly hair and I'm very hairy. And the hair issue, I really got pissed off about because I used to, I used to straighten my hair when I was 10. Um, every time I'd had a, I washed my hair, I, my mum had to sit there blow drying it for ages. I really hated having curly hair. I tried to bleach it. I, I put this sun spray thing in and it turned it ginger for some reason. And um, anyway, so 
for me, this resonated to some extent. Well, we know colorism has been addressed in other places, right? I mean, there's a, I, I was watching some campaign and they started off, it was a documentary, and they started off talking about how the mica, the little children are mining it, and somehow it turned into the children then being able to go to school and form an organization to tackle colorism. I, I didn't get where that leap came from. It's like, so the kids aren't <laughs> going to get their parents better jobs. Fantastic. <laughs> but that's exactly well, it. So- I I thought, well, it addressed that. So none of it addressed, well, what's systemic about this whole thing? Um, And this is why immediately I thought of the films that uh, George brought up that were empowering in the sense that they had main characters that were women. I mean, I refer to Black Girl, for example, which is available to watch on YouTube, and that's an Usman Sambene film. And what I absolutely loved about it was it was about how sarcastic she was, how intelligent she was, and how much she was taken advantage of by this French family that she'd gone over to work for. It was None of it was about her looks, none of it was about the aesthetics of Africa. And even his more symbolic films, I mean, George can back me up on this, but um, what am I thinking of? Jala or... Is, is it Moulade? Moulade, yeah. It's very symbolic there's a lot of it that's very abstract there's a lot of it that's rooted in myth and in legends and in local folklore and so on but it really works as a piece of satire as a piece of critique it addresses fundamental issues of socioeconomic origin on the ground and where i felt that black is king it was very much like a music video that's not essentially trying to do much more than that even though it pretends it does Um, And ultimately, and that's my biggest issue with it, which I thought was um, echoed quite well in, of all places, an article in Teen Vogue by an author called, um, he's a a music reviewer, Timo Tepaku, who, and I quote him, um, the expectation that through a project created for the notoriously conservative Disney, exclamation mark, she would somehow engage in an in-depth dissection of the oppressive intersections of capitalism, patriarchy, heteronormativity and anti-blackness might be too much to ask. And ultimately, that's the problem. It's Beyonce as an artist whose entire career is rooted in that system. And that's what's reflected in this. To be honest, she's not much of a hypocrite because the whole premise of it is that we should be proud of our origins because they are rooted in royalty, they are rooted in aristocracy. And the sense that she brings to it is that this pride is found in opulence and bling and extravagance. I use that same word opulence. Let's talk about that because that was one of my issues as well because I I think it's a dangerous myth that we don't think is dangerous enough. So there is certainly... A term, right? Like we call each other kings and queens, which I think is fine, just as if you address someone as madam or sir, even though they actually aren't. But it's a way of showing respect. And I think it's great that we use terms that find ways to uplift and respect each other and affirm who we are. I think that's wonderful. It then becomes a problem, though, when we think we are actual royalty. Now, of course, we know the common saying, right? That, what is it that all commoners have noble nobility in their background and vice versa unfortunately there seems to be this real thing that no we actually were it's like well if you were sold off it's likely that the king or queen sold you off which is why your ancestors ended up as slaves in america you get where i'm going 
And I just think it's bizarre that we don't want to accept that sort of truth because I think it's a complicated to re relationship to West Africa. I mean, there's the obvious that we're descended from West Africans, right? We only need a mirror for that. However, I don't think we want to get honest about the slave trade and how that happened. And if you listen to actual reputable historians from Ghana or Nigeria, they'll be very clear about the different stages of slavery where, yes, at one point people were being taken, but ultimately they were sold. And ultimately people were fine to do that to keep their kingdoms propped up by European powers, yeah. at, you know, in certain stages of colonialism. And I think we just have to be honest and say, well, let's tell the truth about how you were marched <laughs> March from the Congo to the coast, because that's just the reality of it. And it certainly doesn't mean that you shouldn't be have pride in the sort of cultural traditions and heritage, but you'd have to dig for them because they only exist in a sort of hybrid form at this point, right? In terms of also being influenced by European culture, we speak English and we're Christians for the most part. And, and, and the same for, you know, I'd say American culture in general, right? Like it's obviously heavily influenced by West African culture, even though there's only credit given to English heritage, right, and German heritage. So, of course, that can mm -hmm. go around. But if we're speaking specifically about Black people, I think it is, that, that's why it, it certainly watching it conjured up, like, our fantasies of the continent. And I wish more Black people would go. But of course, being uh, a group with no wealth, we can't really afford that. But for the ones who can afford to travel, I would encourage to and pick a country to go to. Actually, I met this woman one time and she called me a dream killer because she said that she was going to get a DNA test and go to the country where her DNA was from. And I laughed, but I, I didn't really take her seriously until she stopped and said, what's so funny? I said, wait, you're, you're serious about that? And I had to explain to her that there is, and that's another thing too, people believe in this sort of biological race that you carry in your DNA and then you can find out where you're from. And of course she was from the Caribbean. So I'm sure she's from a few different West African groups. Right. And although of course we know European, but she doesn't want to trace that one, but we won't go there. What I did say though, is just pick a country and go to it. I mean, but it's how it's the narrative is you have to go to find out who you really are. No one says it to Afro Mexicans. No one says it to Brazilians. It's just us who, you know, 12, 15 generations on, it's like, no, 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 you need to figure that out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it is then instead of accepting that historical truth and then going to see the continent where, you know, wherever you choose to go as it exists today and then understanding that in its context, we do a coming to America motif. And I love coming to America. And there's the sequel coming out in December, which I'm sure I'll be dragging Pablo no. to. Oh, yes. Oh, really? yes. We're going to that. Oh, cool. I've already bought my shirt to wear. I got a McDowell's T-shirt. Same cast? Uh, well, I, I think... I think it, a lot. Yeah. Again, like, I like it because it's fun. I certainly don't think it says anything about African royalty as it exists today. It's absurd. But there is this, like you're saying, this sort of emphasis on opulence. And I think I'm more disappointed because as a black American, we understand that that sort of opulence was built on our backs. So how can you yeah. on the one hand say, like we come from the slavery that allowed the primitive accumulation of capital that puts us where we are today and then we celebrate it. Like why does that make you happy if a black person is doing that versus 
a European or a white American. Because they're American. Because before being black, ultimately, they're American. They grew up in America. Yes, and they espouse American values. And we do have American values, absolutely. But, but, it, but so, yeah, so then to export that, though, right? And even looking at, like, visually mm -hmm. that whole coming to America scene, it was even the way they had the servants. They objectified the servants, the descendants of slaves, for God's sakes, having African, with, like, these just like statues and they added it's like they added something to the landscape from the the styling and the textures like in the library scene it was all very beautiful but then when you think like why would you have the people engaging in that way mm -hmm. given what our ancestry is i i wasn't quite sure about that so i mean it wasn't derogatory i just think that sort of uh you know it was an it was presented as authentic when, in truth, yeah, this I think is that's what, the this is how the ultra elite lives. Because I, we all know that there are people who live that sort of opulent lifestyle. As we say, they come to Europe for the weekend for these extended shopping trips. We all know about that. But that is the ultra elite. That is the aristocracy. Yeah. That is now what you see in many countries is, you know, polarization of wealth. It's extreme. But like you said, I don't think that was really her point to do this. Even So if we think about the title, right, Black is King, I think it was culture. And, and it had to be a superficial way, because if you're talking about all one billion people of African heritage in the diaspora, there's no way you could do that in an hour, let alone visually what that would even look like. You have to be pretty selective. Well, that's why yeah. I brought up Sembene. I mean, films like Muladi, because they do that. They manage to speak about so much. Talking about colonialism, he's talking about oppression, he's talking about everything's in there. And it's a really angry, but very also quite funny critique of an entire system that he manages to, to do. And my concern is as a as a music video as a piece of art as what I, I i guess a concept album that really works it's just reading between the lines or not even but basically reading that her ambition is to present herself as this figurehead for the whole of whatever x generation african americans well you know what's interesting too is that there is no touch on the history of black Americans in the continent. So like our history in Liberia and Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. that's never touched on. Because of course, the kind of common sense thing given, you know, the kind of abolitionist discourse on repatriation, I think you see those same themes coming through today when people talk about going back, quote unquote, home. And it's interesting that they don't mm -hmm. choose those two places. It's like, why not? That's where you went and caused trouble a hundred years ago. Go on back there. Then since you want to go. So and that's when you kind of have to disentangle. What are people really saying? What are they really after? So I think that's still a question. But George, didn't you have some questions in Abla? I don't oh, think yeah. you asked questions. Okay. Uh, well, it's really enjoying yeah, this, this discussion, listening. But I, I want uh, maybe to slightly defend, like, no film can probably do satisfy all of those things yeah. you're talking about. I mean the, the 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 film is from the start the starting point is is overly ambitious anyway so the idea of Africa and then you can't cover Africa in the film there is no such thing as Africa just like and like an amalgus blob is there so but I don't think I don't I mean Beyonce is not as well positioned as Simbene was in his late career to make 
a serious like political engagement with say uh, with Semeni would be Senegal. Um, I mean, it's always going to be an outsider's view, no matter how much um, continental talent she's working with, I think. Uh, but perhaps if we see it, I mean, I, I think it's, we can say this is a work of like Afrofuturism. It might be deliberately shying away. It's like uh, sort of James Baldwin criticizing Native Sun, saying like, why, why do we have to see black pain? Or even like bell hooks talking about how much he hates 12 years a slave like why do i why do you have to show me that so i mean afrofuturism to be so utopic i suppose is is the is is the idea uh, associated with that genre. i don't know uh, they had a house full of servants so utopia for who and i uh, think that's right, yeah. my question <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's like the main critique because there are I, lots of scenes I, like I, the guy they, going out to partying the think? wedding scene they weren't so opulent so i think it was those specifically I mean, I do find that that's uh, mood forever. The scene you've been talking about. I mean, I think it, it not explicitly, but is fairly ironic. In you've got them having their TV dinner with their champagne, and this these like Busby Berkeley sequences, but with black synchronized swimmers and her basically winking at the camera at the end. But I, I think with Beyonce, there is sort of uh, no getting away from that critique of her as a business person her as a massive cash generator although as i said at the start you know the fact that beyonce is attached to this has allowed all of these creative people to have some access to the cash but with afrofuturism and i'm thinking my uh to, to quote the major Kodjo again, um, so he, before the film came out, his main concern was, so he, he really strongly dislikes when particularly American or British as well, black creators, artists superficially use African aesthetics or, you know, have some kente cloth on because they think it looks cool without really understanding that. So his issue is always, where does Afrofuturism uh, cross the line into Afrofetishism, and perhaps the American making this kind of Afrofuturist work about Africa can never really escape Afrofetishism, no matter how well researched it is. Clil Joseph, uh, believed to be Beyonce's big inspiration, uh, aesthetic inspiration, said he's much more interested in felt experience as opposed to lived experience. So there might be something in that that she's not so concerned with showing a kind of how actually it is. But in that sense that she wants to evoke mood rather than have a, a, a like a really strong intellect really engage you strongly on an intellectual yeah. and she's not trying to raise your political consciousness she's trying to raise some kind of um emotional state here uh did you i think you're right to some extent it's successful and it definitely will appeal to a lot of people in exactly the way you explain so i'm sure a lot of people and many people who'll be watching it will think it's just really cool it's mm. empowering in the sense that it makes you feel like um, there's this very rich, very cool, very colourful heritage that's yours to take and to be proud of and to show off. So in that sense, I'm sure it's very successful. I wish personally that it was, but again, that's not, I guess, Beyonce's role. But then is she 
presenting herself in that role. I don't know. But I wish it was presenting a more, and I don't mean at all presenting like misery porn or whatever, but um, presenting another, say, slightly surreal utopian vision of um, people finding power in other ways, in solidarity. The problem is power in that film was embedded in wealth and in opulence. Mm. I've read a, quite an interesting interview with Blitz Bazawile, uh, Sbero Okuju, and this, but he was asked about that. So, because Sbero Okuju is quite is against kind of fraudulent uh, capitalist uh, processes, yeah, so he was asked directly, like, example. "Just do you not think that sits quite uneasily?" And he kind of brushed off the question, but he did. What I think was mm-hmm. the interesting thing is he says, "Like, okay, but." You know, like Barrio Koji, just by being on Netflix, probably Atlantiques have probably been watched more times than like Black Girl by somebody has ever been watched, by the way. I would exactly, guess. Yeah. So um, those kinds of films, he says, like this is the start of a new life for African cinema. So he talks about the actual utopia being that something like Black is King, which now feels like the one big film that everyone's watching that's about Africa is one day just going to be a kind of little footnote in the start of this new production cycle where, you know, at least hopefully like uh, Basil Wille is going to get some more money from Netflix to go make a film. Mm. They'll probably end up just making like Black Panther 3 down the line, but maybe that's fine. <laughs> or like, mm. you know, Jen and Curie is going to get more commissions. So so it's the platform it gives to these artists. The plat- I mean, the platform yeah. and, it's you know, time is it, something to look back on, but like the opportunities and is the legacy going to be that these uh, African creators, African filmmakers and writers who can really write and direct films about the African experience in a way that is so much more politically and culturally connected uh, authentically. I think that would be the true, if that comes to be the case, then that means that Black is King was completely worth it. But I think those are two different questions, right? Like, I think it's two different questions. Like, on the one hand, we're talking about individuals like stylists, directors, vocalists, creatives, the filmmakers on the continent who will now be given opportunities. Like, that is 100% going to happen, right? And so all these artists will be able to hopefully leverage into contracts and concerts, maybe even promotional deals. Impact-wise, it's still about what's able to be made. So before, you know, like George was talking about Bell Hooks saying, like, she didn't understand why why 12 years of slave need to be made i actually like that film and i think it did need to be made because i actually don't think people do understand slavery so not only do people not understand slavery but people don't understand how we live with the consequences of slavery and that second part isn't shown so i think considering in the u.s what kind of black life is shown on television you can't even get authentic black life on television right so that doesn't exist where we have a show that shows a regular family where the mom's a school teacher the dad's a truck driver you don't see that anymore so certainly i don't know if that is going to create the space for that kind of uh filmmaking to show authentic african life by african storytellers and African filmmakers. I'm not sure about that, but who knows? Like opportunities come about and people can push the envelope. But I think it's, to me, more what 
what it speaks to. And, and it is specifically the opulence because not all the scenes had that, like the introductory scene, even though my mom didn't like it. My mom thought who, wa- my, well, my mom said who walks like that with the baby. She thought it was a little too much and she thought it was disrespectful <laughs> to the people. She said, oh, is she supposed to be representing an African woman? Cause I can't see her doing that with a baby. So the wedding scene, which I think was my favorite. So there were ways to do that without, I think going into this fantasy that I think you see, continuous throughout the, you know, how Africa is represented in U.S. media. And I think that's the bigger question about who gets to be in charge of that story. And I think it is all about kind of what role that group plays in the society, right? So how is it that the general public wants to see Black people depicted? And I think we're at a stage now in the U.S. where like bell hooks, and that's why I think I would disagree with that comment. It's like, well, we don't want to see the struggle anymore. We want to see people doing well. But it's like, okay, well, if there's only five of you doing well, is that really what you want to tell? And we have said, yes, that is what we want because that makes us feel better and that builds our self-esteem. Perhaps, but then when do we ever get to the story that helps us better understand our material conditions? Which, like you're saying, of course, that's not the job yeah, of this Yeah, but it's not video. Beyonce that's Yeah, and it's not that. her job to do that. But I also think in terms of the legacy, though, I, I think that it could just open the door to more of that, more fetishism, where what we want to see from Africa in terms of their films is we want to see people being happy and doing wonderfully colorful, creative, yeah. beautiful things. And only pretty people allowed, right? Because this is Hollywood. Just to say one other thing that came to mind, I don't know if it's so much of a conclusion, is also I think even the legacy of West Africa is complicated because I remember I took a class, um, only one, it's really sad, but I only took one class on African history and he talked about that. The historiography is complicated because a lot of their myths through colonialism, right, they were infused with Western Christianity. So even though they think a lot of the stories are authentic, they really aren't because they changed them in order to fit that. So I think that that even though people talk about it as if you can trace it back hundreds of years, I don't think that's necessarily true either. And there's nothing wrong. That culture changes, right? And you get different influences. But I think that should also be recognized. And maybe people, you know, think about culture in a more complex way, nothing that is pure, unadulterated. And that's the only place you can go to find it to be your true self. So I would say that I think um, outside of the luxury, if we're just imagining, of course, everything was beautifully shot, everything was beautifully done. And as you pointed out, George, there will be opportunities for people that would not have otherwise been there. So to amplify those voices, I think to me is the best thing that superstars and icons can do for others. So I think that was positive. And of course, everything was beautiful. It's just, I think there was a sort of dangerous uh, myth of one cherry picking ancestors and only caring about the ones that were regal and royal and believing that authenticity lies somewhere on the continent. Nicely said. Right, George, your conclusion? As a kind of conversation piece, I think it's it's really valuable. Yeah, I think just to, to go back to like this kind of tension between the fantasy or the reality or like the utopia or the real like dystopian elements of, of like the African experience. That Bell Hooks uh, interview I quoted from was an interview she did with Arthur Jaffer and really... Um, maybe if you can find Arthur Jaffer's film Love is the Message, the Message is Death it's a seven minute 
short film. It is something that incorporates both images of pain and joy in Black American experience. It is perhaps in a similar kind of kaleidoscopic collage style that you could, could relate to something like Black is King in terms of style, but content-wise, it is much more plugged into a socio-political moment. Arthur Jaford talks about with to understand an image, you have to understand it in context. You have to put an image before and after it. And you may forget two of those images, but the third image you will understand and those two images you forgot, they helped inform your experience of this other image. So if people watch Black is King, I hope they look into the work done by uh, other people associated with it, uh, some of the collaborators that are making much, le much less visible, but really important work, uh, really amazing work. Um, and try and find a copy of Love is a Message, the Message of Death by Arthur Jaffer for a slight tonic to some of the ways in which Black is King might be fallible. Thanks, George, for joining us. This was the My Dialorama podcast. You can uh, tweet us your comments and feedback at My Dialorama and uh, check out our website, mydialorama.org.uk. All details will be in the blurb. And see you next time. <laughs>